Welcome to Create an Impact Talks. The show where we meet people who create an impact for our world. We learn about their initiatives and what drives them. On our first episode, Captain Alex Cornelsen, CEO of Sea Shepherd Global. I actually was arrested in Taiji in 2003, so I spent 23 days in jail in Japan. What gets me up in the morning is knowing that we're making a big, big difference. The most floating objects in the oceans are plastic, and so the albatross died because of starvation. Plastic pollution is, is a big, big problem. So in that short period of time, we completely destroyed the ocean. We wanted to clean a section of 14-kilometer beach, and we ended up cleaning four kilometers because there was too much trash. Yeah, welcome to our first ever episode of this and uh, really happy to have a really special guest uh, at the first episode, uh, Captain Alex Cornelsen, mm -hmm. CEO of Sea Shepherd Global. Thanks for, for having us here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, last time we uh, we uh, saw each other, it was in Amsterdam, in, in the office there, and now you, you moved a little bit out of, of Amsterdam. You grew out of space? or what's, uh... Yeah, it was just uh, our Amsterdam office is kind of small. It's a combination of the store and the office, and there was just too many of us there so also to have more space for meetings we you know, we got the option to uh, to move here which is half an hour for Amsterdam and it's in the middle of the forest uh, it's a really cool location so we're actually quite happy here we're going to talk about Sea Shepherd uh, also later and about the ocean and stuff like that but this interview this conversation is also about you and um, why you decided to, to join Sea Shepherd and and how you you grew up and and um, yeah what what made you like the, the person you, you are today okay. So, um, yeah, first question would be, um, can you talk to the people uh, maybe who don't know exactly about Sea Shepherd, what Sea Shepherd as an organization is doing? Can you explain a little bit about the, the history and, and what you guys are doing? Yeah, so Sea Shepherd was founded in 1977 by Captain Paul Watson. Uh, he's also one of the founders of Greenpeace, and he decided to make his own organization in 1977 that is more active, more proactive than, than Greenpeace. Greenpeace is a protest organization for a direct action group. You know, we, we really uphold international law, and yeah, sometimes we push the limit. Sometimes we go really far to make our point. Mm. Uh, we also use the media as a very important weapon uh, to get the attention for the topics, and it has resulted in many campaigns with yeah with good results and uh, so the, the media is extremely important for us so we always say our biggest weapon is the camera mm. and that way we can show the people what's going on and that way you can create public pressure that will uh, force governments to make a change mm. so captain watson started this in 1977 and the first campaigns he did was a seal campaign in uh, eastern canada to stop the clubbing of baby harp seals Then there was a campaign against uh, pirate whaling, where he sank the Sierra in Lisbon Harbor. He went after the Spanish uh, whaling fleet, it was an illegal whaling fleet. So it was mostly around uh, marine mammals at the time. And then during the years, you know, we started doing more and more projects. Uh, we had a campaign against drift netting in the Pacific in the 1990s. Uh, dolphin campaigns all around the world, and of course the Antarctica campaigns, where we, uh, where we. Basically, had a had a squabble with the uh, Japanese whaling fleet, fishing illegally, whaling illegally in the Antarctic. Uh, campaign that this year is the first year that Japan is not going to go down to the Antarctic anymore. 
So you know, our mission was to shut down whaling in the Antarctic, and yeah, this December was the first time that yeah. we can say we achieved that. So it's a big, big success for us, of course, and for the whales. So yeah, it's it's a big organization now. You know, when I first joined, there was one vessel, and now we have eleven vessels operating around the world, which makes us the biggest uh, private navy on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, for uh, for quite a time, uh, actually, the Sea Shepherd was best known for chasing whalers, especially Japanese whalers around the world. And and now, um, Sea Shepherd also is, is evolving and is, is changing its, its strategies a little bit. Uh, what is uh, what does the future look like? Or mm-hmm. also now and going to the future, what is what is Sea Shepherd's work changing in the moment like? Yeah, we've always been known as a save the whale movement. And of course, saving the whales is extremely important. But you know, we've come to realize that if we don't save the oceans, then we can save as many whales as we want. But the whales are going to die out if the oceans die out. Mm. So our focus needs to be save the oceans. And what better way to do that than, than to tackle illegal fishing? Mm. In fact, we see three problems with the ocean. It's of course global warming, uh, it's plastic pollution, and it's illegal fishing. So we as an organization, with our knowledge, with our experience, we focus on illegal fishing. Mm-hmm. And all the campaigns we're doing right now are campaigns to stop illegal fishing. And in the three years that we've been doing campaigns in Africa, we've saved more wildlife than in all our history combined before. Mm-hmm. So we're making a huge impact. Mm-hmm. So you just explained about the three biggest pillars of Sea Shepherd's works in the moment. Can you go a little bit more into deep about the campaigns or things you're doing in the moment and um, also then leading also to, to plastic pollution, mm-hmm. which you also see as a really one of the biggest threats of the ocean in the moment. Yes. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, yeah, as I mentioned before, there's three pillars. There's, of course, global warming, which is a problem that affects all of us and it's something that we all have to address. You know, we as an organization, we've been uh, operating uh, ships fully vegan since 2000. Mm. So in a way, we're contributing to our, you know, to helping solve the the issue of global warming by having a vegan diet, which is a big, you know, it's, it's already a big advantage, mm. big step forward. Uh, but of course, our ships still use diesel, so that's not good. But if you want to catch poachers, you're going to have to, you know, unfortunately, the poachers don't use sails. Yeah, yeah. If they did, then we'd all be operating sails. <laughs> but in order for us to catch the poachers, we do have to burn uh, diesel, unfortunately. Um, plastic pollution is a, is a big, big problem. I mean, we, we didn't really focus on plastic until maybe 10 years ago. We've been doing beach cleanups. Uh, we have... Um, a pretty big group in um, in Australia, the Marine Debris uh, Campaign, where they clean out the beaches, but also catalog everything they find to make it you know, clear what it is out there in the ocean. And you know, as you know, we're producing an enormous amount of plastic every year, and plastic is something that's been around for less than 100 years, commercially being exploited for about 65 years. So in that short period of time, we completely destroy the oceans. And if you go diving anywhere, you go anywhere, you, you'll find plastic is just It's not just on the surface or on the beach, it's all through the ocean. And because when we do a beach cleanup, you know, we did one in Arnhem Land, Northern Australia, where we cleaned, we wanted to clean a section of 14 kilometer beach, and we ended up cleaning four kilometers because there was too much trash. And we collected all the information, we counted uh, 12,000 shoes on that four kilometer stretch. 
You know, there was like 4,000 cigarette lighters, you know, hot pieces of hot plastic. We had it analyzed by a university in, uh, in Hobart, and the calculation was that on, on that stretch of beach, that 14-kilometer, uh, they calculated there would be 250 million pieces of plastic. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a very small section of beach with that much plastic, you can imagine how much plastic is out there in the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere, and that's just the stuff you can see, mm-hmm. and that's obviously being broken down into microplastic, nanoplastic, it ends up in the food chain, you know, it ends up all through the fishes, the jellyfish, you name it, everywhere, it's everywhere, in the corals. So it's, it's a big problem, it's becoming bigger and bigger, and we need to do something about that. So, you know, we do educate people about plastic, you know, we, on our ships, we have a plastic waste policy, we absolutely do not want to take any plastic on board, because of course, as a ship, you know, you have to dispose of it, and you can't do that at sea, we don't want to carry it back to port, so we always try, when people donate stuff to us, we ask them, please don't bring it in plastic, if you can, you know, we appreciate all donations, but if you can, try not to bring plastic because, we, you know, we need to lead by example. Mm-hmm. But it's difficult, you know, if you go to a supermarket anywhere in the world, it's everything is plastic, wrapped in plastic mm-hmm. because well, we're used to it. It, it helps with, uh, with food storage, you know, it helps with display. It's, it's just easier for the supermarkets to have all that plastic. But it's something that we really need to do something about. It's been calculated by, by, that by 2050, the total weight of plastic in the ocean will outweigh the biomass. So there'll be more plastic than life in the oceans. That's insane. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's also been predicted that by 2048, there'll be no more commercially exploitable fish in the oceans. So we're facing on one hand that all the fish is going to disappear, and on the other hand that the plastic is going to outweigh the fish. So at some point, you know, they, they're going to reach the same level. So mm-hmm. the question is, what's going to happen first? But we can't have any of this happen. You know, we have to prevent both from happening. Mm. And that's really important. That's why we are fo- focusing on the plastic pollution, but also on the illegal fishing. And of course, as an organization, Sea Shepherd, we have the history, we have the experience in illegal fishing. That's what we do. Mm. You know, we're in, um, an anti-poaching organization. Yeah. So our campaigns in Africa, for instance, that we started three years ago, working together with authorities, uh, coast guards in those countries to help patrol their waters. So countries that often don't have the means to to buy a vessel or to use a vessel. So their Coast Guard is, is, is dependent on small dinghies and they can only go out a few miles. The poachers go out a little further, so the poachers get away. Since we've been doing these campaigns, three years now, we now have seven corporations in Africa. And in those three years, we, together with our partners, we arrested 45 illegal fishing vessels, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So from what you see in the moment, what, what is the situation of the, of the ocean in the moment? And what are the biggest uh, threats to it, actually? Yeah, I think we can uh, establish three main threats. Of course, global warming. It's, it's obvious that it's a big threat to the ocean. You know, see water temperatures rising, corals are dying off, you know, countries are running, you know, islands are basically being flooded because of that, storms are increasing, it's the whole global climate is, it's something is seriously wrong with that. And it's of course because of global warming, so we really need to do something about that. And that of course is a topic that Sea Shepherd doesn't necessarily focus on. Uh, but what we do focus on mostly is in legal fishing, IEU fishing, illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing. And those are the campaigns that we're doing right now in, in Africa, but also in South America where we are partnering with uh, local law enforcement to stop illegal fishing. Mm-hmm. And that's the main, main issue that we're dealing with. And, of course, plastic pollution. And plastic is you know, one of the biggest threats to the oceans. And we managed to destroy the ocean and the planet in about 65 years, and we're still producing more plastic. It's not like it stopped, and you know, now we have to clean it up. It's like we're cleaning it, but we're not cleaning it quickly enough because more plastic is coming in as that we're taking out. 
So we need to really do something about this. There needs to be an alternative to plastic, or plastic just needs to be stopped being produced. Mm. And of course, that's a big problem because we're completely dependent on plastic. Mm. Everything is dependent on plastic. Mm. It's become such a common factor that you know the plastic made from, from the oil, mm. it's something that's going to have to go. We have to do something about this. And it goes uh, to your consumer behavior. You know, when you go to a supermarket, you buy everything in plastic. You can also buy it at a local farm and bring your own back. It's already reducing the amount of plastic. But that's, you know, in countries like Germany and Holland, it's easy because, yeah, there's recycling facilities here. Mm. We can get rid of it. But then if you look at Asia, some countries in Asia, where the plastic is flowing in rivers right into the ocean, mm. that has to be stopped too. And this is something that we have to address. Mm. Only there, you know, they're more... In the more concerned about surviving than taking care of the plastic, so it's it's difficult, you know. How are we going to solve this problem? We need to solve it. It's not a matter of like, okay, let's try to find a solution. Now we need to find a solution and quickly mm. before it's going to suffocate us. And it's already suffocating the life in the oceans. You know, like I don't think there is a, a fish in the ocean that doesn't have at least an amount of plastic in their stomachs. You know, seabirds are dying because of plastic ingestion. Albatross, we used to see quite a few of our, like the first campaign within the Antarctic in 2002. At some point, there were like six wandering albatrosses following the ship for days. The last campaign we did, we, we didn't see a single one. So they're disappearing. That's really sad. I and mean, albatross is an amazing bird, you know, it can just glide in the ocean for months, doesn't move his wings at all. But they're scavengers, so they'll pick up anything in the water. And unfortunately, plastic is one of the biggest. Uh, floating object, one of the, you know, the, the most floating objects in the oceans are plastic. And so the albatross died because of starvation with a stomach filled with plastic. Take us a little bit back in time and how you grew up and, and give, the, give the people a little bit background about, about you. Oh, I mean, I had a pretty normal up, uh, upbringing. I grew up in the south of Holland, uh, went to school and you know, did my studies, I actually studied videography. Then I worked as a graphic designer for a while and and actually through a friend of mine who, uh, who joined Sea Shepherd in 2000, I came in contact with the organization. Mm -hmm. And at the time I hadn't heard of Sea Shepherd at all, didn't know anything about the organization, didn't know anything about Captain Watson or the videos that they made, the campaigns they did. Uh, so when I saw a presentation in Amsterdam, I was completely blown away. Like, How is it possible this organization has escaped my attention for so long? And uh, so then a friend of mine, he went on board, he filmed uh, for six months, made a documentary for Dutch TV. And when he came back, I decided that, that was it, I mm. had to join this organization. Okay. But is there something in, in your roots, in your upbringing, w w looking backwards, that, that have you been linked to the ocean from an early age on? Or how was... Really not. I've just been, you know, sailing like other people. And I mean, I've been involved in a bit of activism, but not, not, nothing serious. But I've always wanted to join an organization that actually makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And as, as for myself, I've always been a diver, and I've always seen, you know, the, I've seen plastic in the ocean, I've seen overfishing with my own eyes. So when I found out there's an organization actually doing something about this, yeah, it was very simple for me to make that step. Okay, okay. Um, I, w I want, to, want to try to get a little bit little deeper in, in the time before Sea Shepherd. So, uh, I, I mean, you, you just told me that you had always like a link to the ocean, through, yeah. through sailing, through, through diving and stuff like that. Can you expand a little bit more on that, like on, on, in, your, in, your, on your roots and your upbringing? Is there anything you, you, could, you could mention that you think, okay, there was also always some, something sleeping in me and, and I, I, um, that, that really, uh, yeah, at, at some point uh, got me to drive. It sounds a bit Dune-like, the sleeper has awakened. 
No, it's, I mean, for me, uh, I grew up in the south of Holland, close to the NATO headquarters. Hmm. So, you know, I was, during my childhood, I always realized that if, you know, some nuclear war ever happened, I'd be the first to go. Uh, but there's no near, no ocean near where I live, mm. where my parents live. So other than diving, I didn't really have a very close link to the ocean. Um, but the diving really opened my eyes. I went diving first time in Egypt, and I went to Indonesia before I joined Sea Shepherd. Mm. And just you know, just entering that world when you dive, it's it's a whole different world. Mm. Uh, one that I like a lot because it's quiet. There's no sound. There's no people, there's very limited you know, impact, human impact down mm. in the ocean, at least when you go to certain places. Mm, mm. Of course, nowadays with all the plastic pollution, it's, it's clear that you know, we are affecting the ocean everywhere. Mm, mm. But my first dives, I saw the beautiful reefs, I saw the fish, and I just loved it. I was mm. instantly in love with the ocean. Mm. Yeah, then in, in 2002, you, you, uh, you joined the organization through, through a friend of yours. And uh, yeah, t tell me a little bit uh, about your, your start uh, with, with Sea Shepherd. Yeah. yeah, my crewing department is going to kill me when I say this, but back in the day, it was just a matter of you know somebody on board, you send an email and you can get on board. Nowadays, it's, it's a lot more complicated because we have a lot of people interested. But you know, back in 2002, there was very few people who knew about Sea Shepherd. So I sent an email to one of the engineers that I met in Amsterdam, and she talked to Captain Watson, and Captain Watson said, sure, we need crew. So I flew to Galapagos, where the ship was anchored at the time, and I came on board, and I started as a chief cook. Mm -hmm. I was just looking at, okay, what do you need somebody? Oh, we need to cook. Okay, I'll cook. So I started as chief cook, and we went from Galapagos to Tahiti and to New Zealand, where we prepared for the first campaign against the Japanese whaling. Mm -hmm. And the campaign was 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. A campaign where we didn't find the whaling fleet, so it was the least successful of all the campaigns, but it, it did give us a lot of information about how we could do the next campaign, which mm -hmm. then started in 2005. Mm -hmm. So that first trip for me was, was, was an eye-opener, because we sailed across the Pacific, and we saw very little wildlife. We saw no whales, we saw only a few dolphins. And I always thought when you go in the ocean, there's whales, there's dolphins, there's seabirds. Mm. And all this was already gone. There was only very, very little, uh, very little there. So for me, that first campaign, also going down to the Antarctic and, you know, actually seeing the beauty of Antarctica with, you know, with the whales and the penguins, which is absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember, you know, being in Antarctica, seeing the albatross follow the ship for days on end, and then, you know, seeing then later on the footage of albatross in Midway Islands that are dying of starvation because their stomachs are filled with plastic. Yeah, all that for me was just like a reason to continue doing what I'm doing. Mm. And so, so then uh, you you spent about 12 years actually in, uh, in in campaigns, and then become after six years you, you became um, the the chief of the Galapagos Islands actually. So yeah, what what made you you stick to to that and and, and yeah, climb the ladder from from uh, cook to to captain uh, and. Um, Yeah, maybe you can explain a little bit on that also. Well, I always wanted to be on the bridge. I always wanted to be a navigator. But when I first joined, we had plenty of navigators, and there was a need for a cook. I knew how to make food. Uh, our ships are fully vegan. Uh, I was already a vegetarian at the time. Uh, I, I turned vegan in 2004. But you know, when I first joined, I was already vegetarian for many years. So for me, it was very easy to cook vegan. Mm. So you know, after a while, after I did the first campaign in Nautica, Uh, position opened up on the bridge, or became uh, quickly became the second mate, and then later under Captain Watson I became the first mate, sailed with him for many years, and then eventually grew up to captain. Mm -hmm. 
and yeah, did six years nonstop. Mm-hmm. And after those six years, I needed a break. I mean, six years on the ship is a long time, mm-hmm. so I needed some time off and do something else. And then the position in the Galapagos Islands, where our previous director was basically uh, threatened by the shark fin mafia, mm-hmm. and so he had to flee the country. So the position opened up in the Galapagos, and, and just you know, luck. As luck would have it, I just met my wife uh, there, mm. who is from the Galapagos Islands, and so we got married, and, and at the same time started the project in the Galapagos, where I stayed for six years. Mm, awesome. And that project turned into a really success. So we had a great team. You know, we, we did the, uh, the dog sniffing unit, a unit that is specialized in the detection of marine wildlife, shark fins, sea cucumbers, lobsters. Uh, we had an educational project where we teach people about the importance of sharks in the ecosystem, most of children. Mm. Uh, we had a legal project where we had they get in capacity building to the lawyers and the judges in the, in the Galapagos to prosecute environmental crimes. And of course, we you know we got a big uh, uh, a big financial support from the Dutch Postcode Lottery, and with that money we could build an AIS system, which mm-hmm. is like a radio detection uh, system mm-hmm. uh, that we use to detect all movement of vessels inside the marine reserve, mm-hmm. the marine reserve. Mm-hmm. And because of that project, now it is mandatory for each vessel, not just fishing vessel, but each vessel in the Galapagos to have AIS on board, which of course stops illegal fishing, but it also improves uh, maritime safety because you can see where everybody's moving at the same time. So it was a great project, a great time in the Galapagos. And then after six years, uh, we, you know, we discussed that we needed to open up a new head office. And so we looked at countries which were most suitable, and the Netherlands was stuck out. Mm-hmm. Most international organizations have their headquarters in the Netherlands. So we decided to do the same. <clears throat> Our ships were already registered in the Netherlands. And, that would, and that's when we started Sea Shepherd Globe. Mm-hmm. And being Dutch, uh, yeah, I was asked to take. <laughs> Makes <the> sense. Uh. <laughs> and with my experience on the ships, with my experience in the office in the Galapagos, leading campaigns, uh, Captain Watson asked me if I could take a lead in mm. Sea Shepherd Global. Mm. And uh, so I want to co- come back to the to the time when you joined Sea Shepherd and you you, cl- you climbed the ladder fro- through officer and then became a captain. Mm-hmm. Like, and at some point you were uh, doing your service as a captain. And how many uh, crew members you had uh, at them with you there? And what's what's the what's the spirit uh, on on these boats then? Yeah, well, at the time we only had the uh, the Fali Mowat, which was our only vessel. Uh, generally the crew would be about 35. And that was it. You know, mm. It was just one ship, so it's pretty easy to calculate how many crew members. Mm. But you know, when you spend time in port, and we spent a lot of time in port because we didn't have money to go out all the time to mm. the campaign. So I remember one year we, we spent a full year in Seattle just waiting for a dry dock position. Mm. Mm. So then it's, at those times you would have between five and ten people on board because nobody mm. wants to sit in port, of course. Mm. Uh, but when you're actually on a campaign, the crew can go up to 35, 40, mm. Mm. really depending on the vessel. Mm. Like our Ocean Warrior only has 15 bunks on board. But the Bob Barker has about 32. Mm. So it really depends per vessel. Mm. Mm. At the time, yeah, we would have on average 20 people on board. Mm. Mm. And um, your, ti- your time on, on sea, like, is there some particular particular uh, things you, you can point out or uh, situations you, you, you could highlight uh, in, in this my, time? Uh, my most uh, knowledgeable moments. Yeah, yeah, so to say. Well, I guess, you know, my. I think one of the most uh, impressive things I actually encountered was my very first day at sea. Uh, we left the Galapagos Islands uh, in the middle of the night, and at seven in the morning we were woken up because we found an illegal longline in the marine reserve. And within minutes I was in the water freeing a turtle from a longline. Mm. So that was for me like the first day at sea. It was like you know actually with my own hands saving life. Mm. 
and I realized, wow, this is amazing. You know, mm, mm. If this is going to be like this every day, then I'm, mm. I'm game. I'm going to stay here forever. Mm. Of course, not all days are like that. Mm. It was my first day, but I, that to this day, that you know, left an impression on me. Mm, mm. And I always have to think about that moment when we see a turtle campaign. You know, when we see turtles being slaughtered, when we encounter a long line. I always have to think about that time when I was in the water freeing that turtle. Mm, so mm. you know, I, I see that in, in our crew members when they free wildlife. You know, they have that same experience, mm. and that's what gives you the drive to do this. Mm. That's what gives you the passion to keep uh, to keep going out there and, mm, mm. You know, for no pay at all. Because mm. most of our people are volunteers. Mm. Yeah, it's because you can actually make a difference. Mm. So, but then in two, 2012, you became the CEO of Sea Shepherd Global. But till that day, is is it experience you had like in the past that still motivates you and, and drives you, or what what is your motivation actually to to do what you are doing? Yeah, I became the CEO of Global in uh, mid 2013. Mm -hmm. That's when we started Sea Shepherd Global. Um, I mean, you know, the, the saving the turtle in the Galapagos is one of the experiences. There's been many, so I only have to think about one of those experiences to keep me going, to keep me motivated. But it's also campaigns like the SEAL campaign in Eastern Canada. I was there in 2005 and 2008, standing up, you know, on the ice up to my ankles in baby harp seal blood, mm -hmm. you know, with the, with the babies being skinned alive and the mothers weeping over their dead carcasses. That also you know, keeps me going. You know that destruction, that that senseless slaughter that people that people uh, do to animals is for me a reason to keep going. Mm -hmm. And um, how is it for you? Do, you? do you? I think you had, had a lot of success in the pa past years, but also there, there there's endless work to do. Actually, so what what is, is is more present for you is it more the the victories you have or you you, you when you go to bed at night you think more about the, the work you you should do more or what what is what is your your mind about that no i think you think more i mean you, obviously you think about the you know the horrors that you see but you also feed on the success that you book you know, when we do a campaign like this year uh, the whaling fleet is not going down to the antarctic anymore And that for us is, is, is a reason for celebration, you know. Mm. When Japan first announced that they wouldn't go down to, that they would actually leave the International Whaling Commission, which they announced last year, the whole world was saying this is terrible, going back to international whaling. But we actually celebrated because we knew that because of their decision, they could no longer conduct scientific research whaling in the Antarctic. So that would stop. And the only thing they're doing now is continuing the Northern Pacific hunt, which is actually around Japan, mm. which they've been doing since uh, the late 80s anyway. Mm. So the only thing they did is change the label from, from scientific to commercial, but they're killing the same number of whales, you know, they're using the same vessels, they're doing the same period. So nothing really changed except for the label, except they finally acknowledged the fact that what they were doing was illegal. Mm -hmm. And now they're going commercial. I really believe that whaling is on its way out. Mm -hmm. you know, Japan will stop whaling eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. yeah, we talked about this point last time when we see each other in Amsterdam. And uh, you uh, you told me actually that the, the day that they announced to uh, to go official whaling again was one of the best days in uh, in, in, your, in your life, actually, or in, in yeah, Sea Shepherd's yeah. history. Because, because basically, you know, our mission was to shut down whaling in the Antarctic. And That, you know, that message for us was the confirmation that mm. happened. Mm. And as I said, you know, they, they are going to continue killing whales in the Northern Pacific, but it's the same as before. The only mm. thing is now they don't call it commercial, and they don't call it scientific anymore, they call it commercial. Mm. Mm. That's something that we've been saying for many years, you know, it is commercial in nature. So now the only thing they, they basically did was change the label and say, yeah, Sea Shepherd was right. Mm. So, yeah. of course, it's a reason for celebration. Yeah. It's vindication for what we've been saying, you know, we're not terrorists, you know, what we've been saying is was illegal. 
proven fact, and they're going to stop killing Wesley and Dalek, as they ever. Mm. Yeah, and I really believe that, you know, now that they're gone commercial, they need to make a profit. Mm. And there is no profit in the mm. yeah. So if they're, really, if they're really looking at this commercially, they have no choice but to decide at some point that it's no longer viable, and mm. then they shut down whaling altogether. And let's face it, nobody is eating it anyway. Mm. The only reason Japan is continuing whaling is because of nationalistic pride. They don't want to be told by the Western world or by any other country that they shouldn't mm. be doing it. So, okay, fine, let's make it commercial, but as long as you stop at some point. Yeah. Yeah, uh, let's take the viewers uh, on, on Sea Shepherd's uh, ships. Uh, how many uh, people are working for Sea Shepherd on, on the sea in the moment? And um, what are these people like? And uh, what, what is their mindset? What's their motivation to, to do the work they're doing? Because most of them are volunteers, right? Yeah, we have a mixture of volunteer crew and also of paid crew, people with experience, like a captain, obviously, you know, they, they're people with training, they, we need to pay them a salary. Mm. And we're not paying nearly enough as what the industry is paying, but people still join us because they really believe in what we do. Mm. So people from the industry, they switch to Sea Shepherd because, you know, they've been working in cargo vessels or well, shipping companies and they're just tired of it. They want to do something meaningful. Mm. So they join Sea Shepherd. And, you know, we, we try to keep our crew as long as we can. Mm. We try to, to stimulate them to grow and to get more courses and to, like a lot of our engineers, for instance, they started as an oiler and we help them provide the training and we pay for their courses so then they can stay and become a second engineer or first engineer or chief engineer. Mm. And that way we invest in our people because we really believe that that's the best way to keep the people interested in sea shepherd to keep them with us and people really care about what we do and they don't have the proper training then it's, it's very important that we invest in those people people that join sea shepherd they come from all walks of life you know we have of course there's the mariners people that actually come from a maritime background but also there's doctors you know we have school teachers uh, students it's pretty much everywhere people from all around the world you know we always try to get a mixture of every country that we can get you know we have of course a lot of Europeans on board but also people from the United States Australia New Zealand uh, a few people from Asia Africa now, now we're doing the campaigns in Africa for instance we are you know we try more and more to get local people to join us so you know we can get a, a bit of a local uh, input national input from those countries mm. after all if we're protecting the waters of Gabon what better to have some Gabonese on board so we're also pushing for that. Mm. So we always try to have a, a pretty good balance of our crew. It's not just, you know, only men from Holland and Germany. Mm. It, it's like, it, it's a mixture of male, female, you know, different cultures, different backgrounds. Mm. And, that, and that really makes it interesting to be on board a Sea Shepherd vessel. Yeah. So mostly people that quit their job at, at some point and wanted to do something more purposeful or something they, they think they could, could help uh, uh, yeah, uh, to yeah, contribute to Sea Shepherd. Yeah. People are either in between jobs or you know, they just finish their, their, their study or, or they take a sabbatical like I did. You know, I, met, I planned to join for one year and, of course, it turned out to be a bit longer. Yeah. I know there's a variety of things you're doing, but uh, is there something you can point out, like, uh, what, what does a typical day look like on a, on a Sea Shepherd ship? Yeah, I mean, when you see the videos, of course, it's always action-packed, you know, you're always going out for poachers and you're fighting with the Japanese. So, of course, that's, you know, that's what people see and that's what people think, that, you know, it's one action-packed ship. It's not like that, you know. Our general day at sea is basically you're going from one place to the other and nothing really happens. So it's maintenance, clean the ship, doing your shifts. If you're on the bridge, you have three hours on, six hours off, it's nine hours off watch schedule. Mm. So, sorry, four hours on, eight hours off. 
So you're doing your watch and then somebody else comes on watch, you have some free time. So a lot of the time you're just bored, mm-hmm. you know, playing games and in fact the most important uh, person on board people always think is the captain, it's not, it's the chief cook. <laughs> because if the captain does a butt shop job then yeah okay, you know, you might get a dent in the vessel or something like that. But if the cook doesn't do their job properly then the whole crew is pissed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really important that you have a good cook because it keeps the crew happy, you know, because yeah. that's like the highlight of the day is meal, st- meal time. So actually your first job at Sea Shepherd was your most important one then? <laughs> yeah, but I don't think they like my cooking so much, that's why I moved up to the bridge. But <laughs> I, I mean, our cooks on board, you know, there are people that have worked in the restaurant industry, you know, we had uh, vegan chefs on board. So it's, it's really vegan haute cuisine that we get. It's, it's just really good, the food. Yeah. That's one of the reasons to join anyway, is just for the food. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so if anybody who's watching this wants to become a crew member of, of Seafair, what's the, what's the way to go? No, if you want to become a crew member and join our ships, uh, we have two fleets, one in the US and mostly does campaigns in, uh, in Latin America, Central America, Mexico, Galapagos, you name it. And then of course the global fleet, which is now mostly focusing around Africa. So you can either join uh, by going on the website seashepherdglobal.org, crewing at sea, or seashepherd.org, which is the US organization. So you can apply for both. Uh, the, you know, the better your background, the better your chances. So if you're you know, a ticketed uh, mariner, then it's easy to get on board. Mm-hmm. But if you have no experience whatsoever, then the waiting is quite long at the moment. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get more ships. Uh, so if people want to help us donate, then we can get more ships and do more work. And, and by having more ships, the chances will open up for more people to join. But at the moment, we're getting one application every day. So that's a lot of applications, and you know, sometimes people have to wait two, three years. Mm-hmm. But then again, if you really, really want to join, then it's possible. You just have to stick to it. Mm-hmm. Like, example is Captain Hammerstead. He was 14 when he wanted to join. Uh, so he sent his application, but we have a minimal age limit of 18. So they told him, sorry, you have to wait until you're 18. But he kept calling the office every month to let them know that he was still interested. And then when he turned 18, he started calling every week until eventually they told him, if you promise me not to call anymore, you can come. <laughs> so I'm not saying people should do that, but you know, if you're really dedicated, then yeah, you can, you can definitely join Sea Shepherd. And get courses, you know, get training. If you really are interested in marine engineering, already go start following courses. If you're interested in navigating, take some courses. That increases your chances to join. Yeah, looking looking to the future. Also, you're also a father, and uh, looking just uh, yeah, the world uh, in in a couple of years. What are your wishes or your uh, what what do you point out or what what needs to change from your point of view? I think what we need more is uh, is is individuals to, to you know to make a stand to make a difference. There's there's a lot of young people right now. They're actually in the media. You know they're. They're speaking out. There's a global movement of people that are, you know, young young people that are saying enough is enough. We need to do something about climate change, and I think this needs to happen more frequently and more um, on a larger scale in order for us to change it. But I mean, looking at the way that the world has changed in the last three years, I'm very very hopeful. I mean, you know, I've been a vegan myself since 2004, but when I first talked about veganism, people would consider me strange. I would never mention it in a public talk talk about veganism too much, people would just tune out. But nowadays, it's, it's like, it's mainstream. You know, veganism is mainstream. Everybody's talking about a plant-based diet. So this change has happened over the last three years, and I think it's amazing. It's, it's, it's really, yeah, it really gives me, uh, gives me a good feeling, it gives me hope that we can actually still change it. Mm-hmm. 
So the timing is really good and we need to make sure that this doesn't stop. We need to keep pushing this movement. Mm. So you're optimistic? I'm always optimistic. If I was pessimistic, I wouldn't be doing this because I've seen too many destruction uh, take place. But I'm always, I'm always positive. Uh, but I do believe that, you know, like as you mentioned, I'm a father, my daughter is 10. I really hope that I can give her a better world than I was given from my parents. Mm. Yeah. There's one more question that just came to my head. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for many years, uh, Sea Shepherd was going against governments, and, and, and now I think you change your uh, strategic a little bit in this regard. So you're cooperating more and more with, uh, with governments, especially in, in Africa. Um, well, is we, that true? Or you, you well, we didn't really go in against governments. Of course, we've had some quarrels with the uh, Canadian government because of the SEAL campaign. Uh, of course, Japanese government doesn't like us very much because of the anti-dolphin campaign, anti-whaling campaign, you know, the dolphin drives in Taiji. The, Can you go to Japan? Or? Um, I actually was arrested in Taiji in 2003 uh, when we first started the Taiji campaign. Uh, I was there with a couple of activists and we, we went into the water and freed 15 dolphins from the nets and were subsequently arrested. So I spent 23 days in jail in Japan. Uh, luckily, the other activist that was jailed was uh, Paul's wife at the time, mm. Captain Watson's wife. So I figured, you know, he's not going to let his wife rot in jail. So hopefully he'll get a good lawyer for her and I'll piggyback out of here. And that's exactly what happened. So I was managed to, uh, to get out. But that was 2003. We were not very well known in Japan at the time. Nowadays, I wouldn't travel to Japan, no. I don't think that's smart. As a CEO of Global, nah, probably not. Because <laughs> okay. I don't think I'll be able to leave. to go better than that. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, but coming back to the question, so you, you, there's, there's some, some things you, you're doing together with, uh, with uh, governments. In the yeah, world, right? well, we've always been working with governments. Like in Italy, we've been working with the Coast Guard for quite some time. In the Galapagos, we've worked with the Ecuadorian government since 1999. Uh, Mexico doing the Fakita campaign. Uh, in Africa, we have seven countries that are, that we have partnered with. But yeah, it's, it's definitely we're you know we're more focusing on cooperation with governments. Also because we we realize that a lot of the illegal a lot of the illegal fishing takes place in the waters of some country. Mm. So we can go out into the high sea, and then you know there is no international police out there. And then we of course you know we have quarrels with illegal fishing vessels on the high seas. But it's much easier for us to address the issues in some coastal state. Mm. And then working with that country is, of course, is a requirement. We cannot go into, say, Gabon and start patrolling their waters without the permission or the cooperation of the government. Mm. So we invite those officials on board and they are then given a platform to conduct the, research, to conduct the uh, patrols they need to do. Mm. So that cooperation is something that we have actually done since the 90s, in the late 90s. But in the scale that we're doing it now, yeah, that's, that's definitely new. Mm. Um, but yeah, that also gives us more legitimacy. You know, we're working with governments, so it's easier for us to say, look, you know, what we're doing is completely legal. And even though before it was too, you know, we always get a lot of criticism because of our sometimes, you could say, hard-to-hard -hard actions. But now we're working with governments. It's like, it's, you know, we're, we're law enforcement. We've been saying we're law enforcement since the beginning, but now we actually have the law enforcement on board. And somebody asked me the other day, like, why don't you throw these bottles anymore? Because we had, you know, the sting bombs that we threw. And, and actually, Captain Hammer said, uh, he answered the question. He said, well, we kind of upgraded from bottles to Galashnikovs. And it doesn't mean that we're carrying guns right now, but we have law enforcement on board. And when they do a boarding, you know, they come on board with arms like any Navy would do, mm -hmm. like any Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. So we don't need the bottles anymore. You know, our partners are giving us the protection, our making the vessels comply. Mm -hmm. 
And the results are amazing. 45 vessels arrested in three years. That's something that we could have never dreamed of. Mm -hmm. But it shows how much illegal fishing is taking place. Mm -hmm. If we are able to catch 45 vessels in three years mm -hmm. with just three ships, mm -hmm. there's a lot more going on. Mm -hmm. And that's why we want to expand our campaigns in Africa. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, our cooperation with governments is definitely, uh, it's definitely a new page that we turned in the Sea Shepherd book. Mm -hmm. Um, actually, it's funny. One of our captains, uh, he is the uh, former chief of staff of the Italian Navy, Admiral De Giorgi. Mm -hmm. He retired from the Italian Navy and became a Sea Shepherd captain. Okay. So we have a former chief of staff of an Italian Navy uh, captaining one of our ships right now. Interesting. Have to meet him someday, so, actually. Yeah. Yeah, he's a, quite a character, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah in the media, and, uh, there is also some, some, some films about like the dangerous uh, situation, and um, yeah, always it, it appeared to be uh, the, the work uh, you, Sea Shepherd is doing to be a little bit dangerous. Is there some scary situation you have faced in your Yeah, in I don't your, think it's dangerous what history? we do you know, more than, than any other profession. Uh, we've never had an injury on board or loss of life or anything like that. Uh, but of course, it's, you know, being at sea, there's always an element of risk. And, you know, Captain Watson said it many years, if, you're, if you join Sea Shepherd, you need to be willing to die for a whale. And, yeah, you need to be willing to risk your life for the oceans. And, and I think that's the only way that we can do, achieve something, is by risking more than, than what some people would feel comfortable with. But then again, you know, it's, you know we have the highest level of uh, safety on board. You know, we have safety drills. We train our crew. You know, everybody's really well prepared for what's happening out there. And now our Africa campaigns, you know, the, the risk is much lower than we had in the Antarctic. Now we're like a day sailing away from port, so it's pretty easy if something happens to go to port. But we've had situations in the Antarctic where a crew member got sick and you're like 10 days from the nearest port. Mm. That's the problem, of course. Mm -hmm. So we always have doctors on board, and so we always try to, uh, to treat our people. But yeah, of course, there's some risk involved. Mm. I personally... I don't think I have any situation where I felt like I was threatened, where I felt that like my life was in danger. Mm -hmm. But on, you know, on the other hand, the animals that we're protecting, you know, they're constantly in danger. Mm -hmm. And some campaigns, you see so much death and destruction that it's just scary. Mm -hmm. That's the most scary part, to seeing what humans are capable of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one more question, <laughs> just following up on that, because... Um, You said that uh, you have to be willing to, to risk your life actually for, for, for the, the marine, uh, marine life. So what made you uh, make this decision actually to, to go out there and, uh, and yeah, what, what, what is your motivation? Can you, can you explain that for yourself or you don't, don't know actually till today why, why is it the way for you? Yeah, um, you know, we, we always say you have to risk your life for the oceans. I, I've never actually felt that myself. Like what I'm doing is risking my life. I don't, I don't see it that way. For me, it's just, you know, I, I have the opportunity. Sea Shepherd gave me the opportunity to go out in the ocean to make a difference, to save wildlife and to grow as a person. And that's what Sea Shepherd is really good at. You know, we give people the opportunity, the chances to, to rise above themselves, you know, to become more than they think they can be. And people always say, like, what can I do? I can't make a difference. You know, if you see some problem in the world, you think government's going to have to solve it. I can't make a difference. But you can. Mm. And Captain Watson, you know, he really inspired a lot of us. Mm. You can actually make a difference. You just have to do it. Mm. If you sit by the sideline, you watch other people to do it, you'll never accomplish something. Mm. If you re feel really passionate about something, change it. Mm. 
Mm. Everybody has that power. Mm. And the more people realize that, the better the world will be. Mm. Uh, talking about Paul, Paul Watson, the, the founder of Sea Shepherd, what, what is he like? I mean, he influenced, obviously, the, 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 the Sea Shepherd movement. Uh, he, he started, he founded it. Mm -hmm. he's, he's the founder of Sea Shepherd. What is he like and how, in, in which way he inspired the, the movement of, of Sea Shepherd? Yeah, Captain Watson to this day inspires us, of course. You know, he still gives talks. Um, unfortunately, because of Japan, he is uh, very limited in his traveling. Japan put an international arrest warrant on him because of the anti-whaling campaigns, and it's highly politically motivated, but unfortunately that limits his travel, which is a, a problem for him, of course. So he's kind of stuck to, uh, to the U.S. right now. Uh, but still, you know, he gives talks, he, you know, he leads campaigns, he's obviously part of every board that we have from every country around the world. And, you know, he's a person who gave up his life to defend the oceans. And that's, it's amazing, you know, if you consider what, what he gave up in his life, I don't think many people can do that. You know, for him, you know, his work is, is his life. Mm -hmm. and, and that's an inspiration. Like, sometimes, you know, some of us would say, like, hey, Paul, I'm going to take, take a holiday. He's like, why? Didn't you have one five years ago? Because, you know, he, he always works. He never stops. Mm. And, and that also drives us because, you know, we don't want to let him down. So even taking a one-week holiday, we feel guilty because we're letting the oceans down. <laughs> so he's, yeah, he's inspiring, but it's also a curse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what makes you uh, stand up in, in the morning and go to the office? What's, what's, what's your... Oh, coffee is what makes me get up in the morning. <laughs> I, went, I had a run-in with one of the Animal Planet uh, film crew when we did Whale Wars. Uh, they wanted to film, like, first thing in the morning. And I always told them, like, you can have me all day as long as you give me five minutes in the morning for my cup of coffee. And they didn't, so the filming was horrible because they would put five cameras in my face before I had my first sip. No, but all kidding aside, what gets me up in the morning is... is Knowing that we are doing a campaign, you know, getting a press release, getting a message from Peter Hammerstedt, our campaign director. We just arrested a vessel in Gabon. One time he sent me uh, like a message saying, we just arrested four, four vessels in, uh, in Gambia. It's like, wow. And then 10 minutes later, two more. And then within like 48 hours, there were 10 vessels that we arrested. Mm -hmm. Now, we did a campaign in the Gambia. We started a few months ago and we arrested a few vessels, four. And then we left, and all the poachers came back because they thought we'd gone away. And then we came back without announcing it, and within 70, 72 hours, we arrested 10 vessels, mm. 10 trawlers fishing illegally. Stuff like that, you know, gets me up in the morning, knowing that we're making a big, big difference. Alex, uh, thank you so much for the, for the conversation. Pleasure. And, uh, yeah, pleasure. Thank you.